Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, stand with me if you will for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 13, and we'll begin reading in verse number 7. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary for, by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. I'd like to preach to you tonight a message that I've entitled, Staying in Tune, Staying on Pitch, sorry, in a World Out of Tune. Staying on Pitch in a World Out of Tune. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to preach. I don't take it lightly, and I ask that you would just um, fill me with your spirit. Help me to say what you want me to say and not what you don't want me to say. And uh, just take me out of the way and ask that your truth would be able to communicate to hearts tonight. May it be an encouragement to believers, a challenge to us. And if there's one here that doesn't know you, your son is Savior. ask that they would accept him tonight. We ask all these things that you would be glorified in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The author Lloyd Douglas tells the following story. When he was in college and university, he was staying in a boarding house on the upper floor, and downstairs there lived a man who was a retired music teacher. And he was an invalid now, he was unable to leave the apartment, this old man, but Douglas said they had a routine every morning that they would go through. Douglas would go downstairs, and he would open the old man's door and say, what's the good news? And the old man would take a tuning fork. If you've seen a tuning fork before, you hit it and it makes a note. He would take a tuning fork and hit it, on, hit it on the side of his wheelchair. And he'd say, that's middle C. That was middle C yesterday. It'll be middle C tomorrow. It'll be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. Now, how many of you have heard a note or, or a pitch or singer maybe that's been out of tune before? We're all familiar with that. There are many situations, many circumstances that could cause a note to be out of tune, either a singer or an instrument. Uh, for an instrument, the weather could change or it could be damaged to the instrument, deterioration over the years. For a singer, it could be nerves or they aren't able to hear as well. There are all sorts of situations that could cause a note to be out of tune. But the only way to stay in tune is to find what that old man found to find the absolute unchanging pitch. Paul was writing the book of Hebrews to, I believe, a group of believers, and he wanted to encourage them because they were facing a lot of situations that could cause them to change their tune. 
They were facing persecution. They were facing false doctrine, facing temptation, just like you and I face. And so I say Paul, sorry, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who this is. He writes to the, the Hebrews and he writes to them to encourage them basically these three words, keep the faith. And he wants to encourage them to keep the faith by anchoring themselves to Christ. So Hebrews 1 through 10, really the main idea there is that he presents this concept that the covenant that we have by grace through Jesus Christ is superior to the covenant of the law. It had a better proclaimer. Jesus was better than the angels and the prophets. Had a better mediator. Jesus is better than Moses and the priests. It had a better sacrifice. Jesus' blood was better than the Old Testament animals that had been sacrificed. So that's basically the, the theme of chapters 1 through 10. Then in chapter 11, we have what's often called the Hall of faith or the faith hall of fame, where the author lists all of these Old Testament saints that had accomplished these mighty deeds through faith. And in, and in chapter 12, verse 1, he calls them a great cloud of witnesses. Now, when he calls them witnesses, I, I don't think he means that they were looking from heaven and watching these Hebrew believers. I believe he's using the term witnesses similar to how Jesus called the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba witnesses. In Matthew 10, uh, sorry, Matthew 12 and Luke 11, you might recall that Jesus said that the Queen of Sheba and, or the Queen of the South and the Ninevites would rise up in judgment or in witness against this generation because the Queen of Sheba had received the words of Solomon. The Ninevites had received the words of Jonah, but a greater than Jonah was here, a greater than Solomon was here, and they weren't receiving his words. And so when he called the, the queen of the south and Nineveh, when he called them witnesses, he didn't mean that they were looking down at the Jews at that time. What he meant was they were historical witness or historical testimony, proof to what had been done with less. And I believe that's what the author is saying when he calls these, this list of Old Testament saints witnesses. He's saying that they are a testament, historical witness or proof of what faith has accomplished with less revelation. The, the Old Testament saints, the, chapter 11 says they all died in faith, having not received the promises. Abel and, and Noah and Moses and Abraham, they looked forward to the promise of the Messiah, but they didn't get to see the day of Christ. These Hebrew believers that were being written to, they lived after Christ's ministry. And so what the author is saying is their proof of what has been done with those who had less revelation than you, who kept the faith. So his encouragement then in chapter 12 is, because you have a superior covenant to the old law, because you have more revelation than the Old Testament saints had, you should keep the faith. That's what he encourages them with. In the beginning of chapter 12, he says you should keep the faith through suffering because that was God's way of chastening them or of pruning things out of their lives that shouldn't be there. In the end of chapter 12, he talks about the fact that this is very serious, this covenant of faith. It's not like at Mount Sinai where, where there was God hiding behind thick clouds and speaking through a spokesman of Moses. God was offering them his very presence and dwelling place through his son himself. And so if the Old Testament, if the Israelites at Mount Sinai had to, had to beware lest God consume them, then certainly those who have been spoken to by Christ should take his words seriously and heed them for God is a consuming fire. So that's chapter 12. We come into chapter 13 now, and basically the author begins to answer this question. If I keep the faith, what will that look like practically in my life? 
In verses 1 through 3, he says that will mean showing hospitality to one another and to strangers. In verses 4 through 6, it says it will mean uh, having godly contentment rather than following worldly lusts. And that brings us then to verse 7, which is our text. And he says in verse 7, here's another thing. If you're keeping the faith, what that will cause you to do is to follow the faith of your spiritual leaders. He says, remember those which have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. He says you should consider the end of their conversation or behavior or lifestyle. He says, look at your spiritual leaders, the ones who have taught you the word of God, and see where their faith is taking them. And then we have verse 8, just this powerful doctrinal statement here in verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. There's so much doctrine packed into that small verse. We have the deity of Christ here. If, if God is the only one who has the attribute of uh, eternal unchangingness, and if Jesus Christ has it, then he must be God, and we know he is. Uh, this verse teaches us the eternality of Jesus Christ. Yesterday, today, forever he exists. But primarily what this verse teaches is a doctrine known as the immutability of Jesus Christ. Immutability just means the unchangingness, the fact that he does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you look at this verse, at first it might seem a little odd and out of place. I mean, here he's in the middle of giving this practical instruction to them, and then suddenly, bam, here's this theological truth just thrown in there. And at first it might seem out of place, but if you consider what the author is trying to accomplish with the book as well as with this chapter, you realize there's a point he's trying to make with this bit of doctrine. It's not just theological trivia that he's throwing out. He wants to produce something in the Hebrew believers' lives. And if this doctrine of the immutability of Christ could produce something beneficial in the Hebrews, I believe it can produce something beneficial in us as well. So we're going to take a look at that tonight. We're, we're going to look at the, the doctrine of the uh, immutability or the unchanging nature of God and then make application from the passage here. The immutability of God is, is the word that theologians would use for the trait of God by which he is unchanging in his being, his character, his will, and his promises. Different people will have different categories, different lists, but that's what we're going to go with tonight. His being his character, his will, and his promises. So let's look at those, those four categories. God is unchanging in his being. That's just basically just to say that he's eternal. God never came into being. He will never go out of being or existence. He just is eternally being. Uh, God is eternal. I love this quote from Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. He says, the doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in him alone, for only he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. I love that quote. God is being, not becoming. He just eternally is. I am, right? All of us can say, I am because of. Only God can say, I am. I just am. That is God's, uh, God is unchanging in his being. Everything about my being changes, right? My body changes as I, as I grow older, but God doesn't have a body. God does not change. My uh, my. Knowledge changes. Every day I learn new things. I forget things that I didn't know. That doesn't, change. That doesn't happen with God. God is um, omniscient. He knows everything at all times. 
my abilities and skills change from the time I first started music lessons as, as a kid at four or five till now. My ability has been changing, and then I, I know there will come a day when my ability will, will rapidly deteriorate, but that's not the case with God. He is omnipotent at all times. God's being does not change. So God doesn't change in his being, number one. Number two, he does not change in his character. Every attribute that God has, he has always had, and he will always have. God cannot become better because that would mean he was not perfect before. God can't become worse because that means he's not perfect now. God is just eternally perfect. That's, his character doesn't change. God is eternally holy and unable to look upon sin. God is eternally loving and merciful and long-suffering. This is important because this, this is contrary to what, what you'll hear a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, that's what, that's what he said in the Old Testament, but times have changed now. Well, yes, times have changed, but God has not. God has not changed, and God still hates sin and loves righteousness just as much now as he always has and as he ever will. God's character does not change. Thirdly, God's will does not change. God is not willing that any should perish. That doesn't change. God is willing to save all who will come by faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't change. God's will is our sanctification, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That has not changed. Calvinism would teach that God does will that some would be saved and that some would not be saved. Even though the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, according to Calvinism, he is willing that some should perish. But that's not true. Calvinism is not true. God's will to save sinners through Jesus Christ has not changed. So God's will does not change. And then last, God's promises do not change. God made covenant promises all through the Old Testament with, with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and Moses and David, and he kept those promises. And if you're a believer in this room, God has made a promise to you, whosoever believeth hath everlasting life. That's a promise that God has made to you, and God will keep that promise because his promises do not change. This teaches us eternal security. If, when, if you received eternal life, when you trusted in Christ, but then when you doubted or sinned or lost your salvation or whatever, he took eternal life away from you, then you never had it to begin with. So God would be a liar. God's not a liar. We, if a God whose salvation can be lost based on us is not the God of the Bible. No matter what the free wills or, or charismatics might say, eternal security is something we can know because God's promises do not change. What about the verses where it says that God repented? Or doesn't that mean to change your mind? Well, you'll look, if you look at those passages, you'll find in every scenario, it wasn't that God's being or character or will or promises changed. It was man's faith that changed, either for the better or for the worse. And so that those, that we cannot take God's immutability to mean that God cannot respond differently in different situations. And there's lots of ways we can illustrate this. So imagine, uh, imagine a boulder right here in front of me, a really big boulder like this. And let's say that a plane comes flying full speed into this boulder. Now, we can say nobody's in the plane. We're not going to kill anybody in our illustration tonight. So let's say that nobody's in the plane, but it flies into that boulder at full speed. What's going to happen? Well, the plane's going to be very mangled, but the boulder is probably also going to shatter into pieces if the plane hits it at full speed. Well, let's change the circumstances, and let's say instead of a plane, a jelly bean hits the boulder probably not going to shatter into the pieces, right? Or even if we keep the plane and we say the plane, instead of flying at full speed, just kind of noses up and gently taps the boulder, probably isn't going to shatter then. It might budge a little bit, but it's not going to shatter. The rock or the boulder didn't change, but the circumstances changed, so the response changed. We see that. God, if, if God could change 
This is important. If God would never changed depending on circumstances, if God never responded differently, we should say, to different circumstances, it wouldn't make him, it wouldn't make him firm and unchangeable. It would actually make him confusing and unknowable. Imagine that. Imagine if God responded the same way to someone who came in humble faith to him as he did to somebody who flat rejected him. If God responded the same in both of those situations, we wouldn't say that he was, he was steady and unchangeable. We would be confused, and, and who can know him? Um, when I was in high school, I played basketball. I stunk at it, but I played it, and I still like it to this day. I still stink at it, but I still enjoy playing it. And, uh, but when, I, when we were in high school, our, our coach used to have us run a lot. Okay? Any of you play basketball or play, you know, yeah, a lot of running, right? Yeah. So one of the things he made us run for was when we turned the ball over. He would actually count during our games how many turnovers we had, and then over a certain number, we would have to run for every one of those turnovers at the next practice, have to run suicides for those. But what if, what if, my, uh, what if my coach had made us run for a turnover, but also made us run when we executed the play perfectly and scored off of it? That wouldn't make any sense. That would be confusing, right? Now, you might say, my coach makes me do that anyway. He makes me run no matter what. But what, what, here's another illustration. What about a teacher? Let's say a teacher gives you an A because you studied hard and got every question right on the test, and he gives somebody else an A who didn't even try and didn't even answer any of the questions on the test. We wouldn't say that that person was firm and steady and unchangeable. We would say they were confusing and contradictory. So it, far from it, it negating God's immutability that he responds differently in different circumstances, it actually uh, reinforces God's immutability that he doesn't change. If something doesn't change, then it has to respond differently based on different situations. When man turns from faith to sight or from sight to faith, God always responds. That's just his character. It's his unchanging character to respond that way. But that doesn't mean that God changes or that he's not immutable. That just means that man has changed his faithward orientation to God. All right, if you're rowing a boat downstream and you suddenly turn around and try to row upstream, you're going to feel that the current that was your friend a minute ago has now become your enemy. But it's not the current that changed, you changed your orientation to it. All right, this cup here that's on this table, if I step over here, I'm a couple feet away from it now. If I step down here, I'm now much farther away from the cup, but the cup hasn't moved. I'm ju I've just changed my, my orientation and my direction from it. And something that's fixed like that, if, if everything is changing around it, then of course those changing things are going to change in their distance and in their relation to that. It doesn't mean that it's moving. Matter of fact, as I walk around, if the cup stayed six inches away from me, then that would mean that it was moving around also. So does that make sense? For something to be unchanging doesn't mean that it won't, it won't uh, respond differently to different situations or have a different orientation as the things around it, us, change. That's God's immutability. And so if you look at all those passages in the Bible, every single one of them where it says maybe God repented or it seems like he changed, what happened in every scenario, you can mark it down, man changed in his faith toward God. In Genesis where it says it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth. When the flood came, what happened? Man had turned from faith in God to wickedness. He's going upstream, if you will, against God's will. And so they face God's wrath and judgment at the flood. Uh, in Jonah, the Ninevites, Jonah came and said, 40 days, God's going to destroy you. What happened? They changed from arrogance and pride to humble faith in God. And what happened? God withheld his judgment from them. And that wasn't a change in God's will or a change in God's purposes. Because think about this. Why did God even send somebody to Nineveh? He wanted to destroy him. Why couldn't he have just done it? Why did he send somebody to give him a 40-day deadline? Well, it's, I think it's clear that because he wanted to give them space to repent. And so they did, which was his will and purpose all along. Now, that doesn't mean they had no responsibility. If they had gone on in their wickedness, then in 40 days he would have destroyed them. But as their 
orientation and faith to God changed, God changed in his response to them. But it doesn't mean that God changed. Uh, when God said to Moses, I'm going to wipe out all of Israel and start over with you. And Moses came in humble faith and intercession for the nation. God responded and God decided to show mercy and go with them. But it was not, again, a change in God. It was a response to the faithward orientation and intercession of Moses. And any other passage where that happens, you'll see that that's the case. So that does not negate God's immutability. He does not change. So coming back to our text here in verse number 8, the author here attributes that immutability to Jesus Christ. It's an attribute of God, but here he says it's an attribute of Jesus Christ. And that makes sense, we know, because Jesus is God. So Jesus, God is immutable. That means Jesus is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But remember, this was not just something that he was trying to throw out as a bit of theological trivia. He wanted to produce something in the Hebrew believers with this doctrinal statement. What was he just talking about in verse 7? He said, follow the faith of your spiritual leaders. Consider the end of their faith, the end of their life. Well, what was the end goal of their spiritual leaders? Well, what's the end of every believer? Being conformed to the image of the unchanging Christ, right? So, so get this, as Christ doesn't change, and as the spiritual leaders stayed in tune with Christ, then they wouldn't change, and they would provide a steady example for the Hebrew believers to follow. So you've got Christ up here. He doesn't change. The spiritual leaders who stayed in tune with Christ, so they wouldn't change. You've got the Hebrew believers who followed their faith as they followed Christ. And so that would mean that they wouldn't change and that they wouldn't be carried about with strange and diverse doctrines like it says in verse number nine. The reason that they could avoid all the strange doctrines being thrown out there is because they remained in tune to the one who never changed, Jesus Christ. But then he makes it even more specific to them. He, he starts to say one of the specific doctrines that you're facing is from the Jews who are trying to teach you that you have to follow their dietary laws in order to be right with God. Paul dealt with this with the Galatians as well, the Judaizers who would come in and teach that you have to not only have faith in Christ, but you have to be circumcised, follow the law, follow all of our restrictions if you want to be right with God. That was what the Jew, Jews were teaching to these Hebrew believers. And so the author here says, no, that, that is not true. That is not the case. And what he does is he sets up this, um, this illustration from the law about the camp of the Jews. You remember in the, in the days of the wandering in the wilderness when they had the tabernacle and the camp and the different tribes were camped around it and they had the law and the priests and the Levites and the sacrifices and the offerings and all the rules and customs that they were supposed to follow in this camp. And what had happened is the Jews were so caught up in the camp and the offerings and the sacrifices and all of these physical things that they neglected to observe the one who had gone outside the gate, outside the camp, and suffered for them, Jesus Christ. He, he said, just like in the law, the lamb, after its blood had been shed, it was, the body was taken outside the camp to be burned, to be disposed of. But they missed that. The, these, these ones who knew the law, who had, who had grown up in the law, had missed the point that the law had taught all along that the end of a relationship with God is not in the camp because there's more going on outside the camp after the sacrifice. But they missed that completely. And so it was that the Jews, the nation that God had revealed himself to, had left their middle sea. And they'd become badly out of tune with the very God that they claimed to serve. But the author here tells the Hebrew believers, he says, you're not looking for favor from God inside the camp of the Jewish laws and the sacrifices and those physical things. You need to follow the unchanging Christ outside the camp. 
the Jews, they were focused on the temporal, the temporary things of the sacrifices and all the shadows of things to come. But the, the, the believers were supposed to be focused on the eternal, the unchanging one. The Jews, they're focused on the physical, the blood and the sacrifice and the priests and the temple and the offerings and the tabernacle. They're focused on all these physical, tangible things. But they were supposed to be focused on the spiritual home that they had in Christ. The Jews were setting their mind on these physical things, but the believers were to set their affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And so he reminds them that by setting their gaze on the eternal unchanging Christ who suffered outside the camp, they would not be drawn in to getting stuck, trapped, searching in the camp, trying to find a relationship with God like the Jews were. And so that, that's, that's what he shows them here. Now, would that, mean, uh, would that mean reproach? Well, he says it will. He says there's going to be reproach if you go outside the camp. You're going to face persecution from the Jews. Jesus said, you're going to take up your cross and follow me. He said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You're going to be an outcast if you come outside of the camp of the world and of the Jews and of what they're trying to follow. You're not, you're not going to be inside the camp. You're going to suffer reproach. You're going to suffer reproach for the name of Christ. He tells them that'll take place. So is it worth it? Is it worth it? Why, why then should the Jewish, or why should these Hebrew believers continue to keep the faith in Christ, even though it would cause all this reproach and all this suffering? Well, has he changed? Or is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because Christ had not changed, their faith should not change. Well, the author tells them, and, and, and he says that that faith that they keep in Christ will produce sacrifices. You say, well, hold on. I thought sacrifices were the bad things. I thought that's what the Jews were focused on over here in the camp. But well, sacrifices weren't the problem. God has no problem with sacrifices if they're sacrifices that come from faith in Christ. The problem with the Jews is their sacrifices came from faith in the sacrifice itself. And, and so God had no, no pleasure in that. In Hebrews 11, he said, without faith, it is impossible to please him. But that's not just any faith. That's faith in the right person, Jesus Christ. That's how you please God. But if you have that faith in Jesus Christ, that faith should produce sacrifices in your life. What sacrifices? Well, he tells us in verse 15, he says, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, praising God. That's a sacrifice. To do good and to communicate, to give to others with such sacrifices. God is well pleased to obey their spiritual rulers in verse 17 and submit themselves. These are sacrifices that a faith, an unchanging faith in an unchanging Christ should produce in the life of these believers. So what about us? I think it's safe to say that we don't face uh, we don't face pressure to conform to Jewish dietary law, but we do face a culture that is obsessed with the temporal and the physical and the here and now. Do we not? You face it every day, at work. You see it on the news. You see it on TV. You see it. You see it in your neighborhood. You see it in your school. All over. You see people with out-of-tune lives and out-of-tune melodies and out-of-tune messages because they're focused on the camp of this world system and the here and now and the physical, but you have in this church a connection to the one who is eternally unchanging, Jesus Christ. You have a pastor, a spiritual leader who, who keeps himself in tune with Christ and then tries to help you to stay in tune with Christ. You have a cloud of witnesses, not just the ones in Hebrews 11, but other, others that you know from this very church who have gone on to heaven that you could name whose lives were a testimony or a witness of what faith does when it remains anchored to the unchanging Christ. You have all of that in this church. So what should that cause you to do? It should cause you to keep the faith. You should keep the faith. 
you should offer the sacrifices of faith. Your fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, I know on a Wednesday night after working all day and after going home, running home, getting everybody ready, coming here, you slide in the pew, you probably don't always feel like standing up and belting out a hymn of praise to God. It could be a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that you'll give if it comes from a heart of faith in Christ. Doing good and communicating, giving to missions, giving to tithe, giving to those in your church that have a need, doing good deeds to help others. While I was saving that money for something else, or that's my day off, I don't want to use it helping them. It, it could be a sacrifice, but, but if you are anchored to faith in the unchanging Christ, that faith should produce those sacrifices. Yeah. Obeying the spiritual leaders that have a rule over you. When our pastor is preaching and he goes from preaching to meddling, as the saying goes, when he starts talking about things in your life that you know you should get rid of, shouldn't be watching this, shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be listening to this, you shouldn't, uh, or he says that you should be doing things, you should be here for all the services, you need to be here for Sunday school, you need to be plugged into ministry, you need to be involved in outreach and in, in witnessing. And when he says those things, you need to submit. You need to obey. You say, well, that's tyranny. No, that's not tyranny. That's a man in tune with Christ trying to help you to stay in tune with Christ. Is it going to mean reproach? Oh, yeah. It's going to mean reproach. I don't know if you've noticed, but what our pastor preaches about alcohol and drugs and marijuana is not really popular in our city. Um, our state legislature doesn't look to Southwest Baptist Church to make most of its decisions. The president does not have our pastor on his cabinet. Our kids are in the schools and universities are not being trained to live a life of discipleship to Jesus Christ like we see evidenced by a brother Gaddis or a brother Sam or a brother McCracken or brother W.L. Smith. That's not what they're getting in the schools and universities. You're not the one that your coworkers are coming to uh, to look for how to approach marriage and family and sexual ethics. You know that. You're going to be outside the camp. You're going to suffer reproach. So, so is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep the faith even amidst all the reproach that I'm going to suffer? Is it worth it to continue to offer these sacrifices week in and week out? How do I stay in tune when I'm hearing so many out of tune messages from the world around me? How do I keep my eyes on him instead of focusing on the camp and the pull of the things of this world and its, its system? Well, you consider, has he changed? Or is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because we serve an immutable, unchanging Christ, our faith in him should not change. Our faith shouldn't change. We should keep the faith because we serve him. You have just as much reason to, to trust Christ now as you did the moment that you got saved. You can trust that he is going to keep you in tune with him, and he has the ability to keep you in tune with him no matter how out of tune the world gets because he hasn't changed. You can trust and keep your eyes on the eternal, just as Brother Nuno was preaching, keeping your eyes on things above, instead of getting pulled into thinking about the camp, the camp of this world and its politics and entertainment and fame and wealth, because all of those things pass away and the lust thereof, but Jesus Christ and the home that you have in relationship with him hasn't changed. So you should keep your faith in him. Because you serve an unchanging Christ, you should keep the faith once delivered to you. Kids and teenagers, you grew up here, you know the stories, you know the songs, but the more that you get into, into the world and into the schools and into social media and entertainment, you're going to hear a lot of different messages, a lot of out-of-tune messages from people about what Christianity is, about what the Bible is and what Jesus is. 
and you're going to be tempted to turn away from that, don't change your tune. Don't change your tune. You keep the faith that you got here at this church because this church is connected to an unchanging Christ. Those of you who are parents or who are in the workforce, adults, you hear it every day on the political commentaries, on the news and all the time, and you even face pressure maybe to slack off in your sacrifices of, of thanksgiving and of faith to Christ. Maybe to, to drop back a little in your giving or in your involvement in church and maybe just kind of isolate yourself a little bit. You face that temptation, but don't do that. Don't change your tune. Don't disconnect yourself from the one who's unchanging. He hasn't changed, so why should you? Those of you who are older, who look down at my generation and the ones that are coming up after you, and, and, and you look at what's going on in our world and our society, and, and you might be concerned about the future of our state and of our city and the future of our country and what it means for Christianity and the future of our church. And it's true that if you keep your eyes on all those things, the, you probably do have some cause to be concerned. But if you get your eyes off of that and onto the unchanging Christ, you can know that he's still worth trusting and following just as much, no matter how bad the world gets. And you can know that as long as there's a body of believers here at 1300 Southwest 54th Street that is anchored to the unchanging, immutable Christ, that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, if the Lord tarries is coming, will still have somewhere that they can come and they can stay in tune with the unchanging Christ. Amen. No matter how out of tune the world gets. So here's the question. Are you, are you keeping the faith? Uh, does your life display the sacrifices of faith that, that, that the Word of God says you should be displaying, giving to others, doing good things, uh, doing good deeds for others, praising Him, and uh, obeying the, the spiritual teachers that you have? Are you, does your life reflect those sacrifices? Are you staying in tune with Christ, or would your life more reflect some of the out-of-tune melodies that, that we see in the world? Are you uh, keeping your eyes on Christ, or have you found yourself focusing a little more on the camp of the world and the physical and the temporal things that it, that it focuses on? You have every reason to not change your faith in Christ because He hasn't changed. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this truth that You are unchanging and immutable and what it means for us that our faith can stay anchored in You and not change because you haven't changed and your word hasn't changed. So I ask that this would be a blessing to some tonight and uh, Lord that this would be an encouragement, a challenge as it's been to me. And if maybe there's one that hasn't placed faith in you yet that they would do so tonight. Lord bless our invitation and the time to follow. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.